Welcome to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We're delighted to have you with us once again as we continue our journey through this quarter's lessons. We are looking at death, dying, and the future hope. And this week, we're on lesson number nine. We've laid a pretty firm foundation. We've got a pretty solid picture, I think, through the last eight lessons of what happens when a person dies and what the future hope looks like. But what about those problem passages? Well, we're delighted to have the author of this quarter Sabbath School lesson with us, Dr. Alberto Tim, who is an associate director of the Ellen G. White Estate, and he is here to help us work our way through some of those problem texts. Alberto, welcome back. It's a joy for me to, to join you. So let's look at these. We've got a lot of them to look at this week, and we're probably not going to be able to look in great detail at each and every one of them. But we are going to at least, at least crack them all. Now, if you want to dig more deeply into these, if you're still trying to figure out and pull some pieces together and you've got this question, well, what about, I want to encourage you, make sure you pick up the companion book to this quarter's lesson. It is available at itiswritten.shop. If you've read the study guide already, if you're watching the program, you've got some of it, but pick this up and it will go into greater detail on how to answer these questions. It is called On Death, Dying, and the Future Hope. The author, of course, is Dr. Alberto Tim. It is written.shop. But let's dive into these and unpack as much as we can. The first one is found in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. And in verse 19, this problem passage begins with these words. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And this story continues down through verse number 31. Alberto, why is the story of the rich man and Lazarus a so-called problem text, and how do we make it less problematic? The text is considered or used by many people to prove the uh, afterlife or when somebody dies, does not die, the soul continues to live. And uh, in this case, you have the dialogue between uh, a rich man and Lazarus. And then in the so-called afterlife, they are dialoguing, or they are in a conversation there. And finally, they, they come with uh, some kind of, uh, the rich man was regretting and asking even, uh, some mercy from from Lazarus. So things really reversed. It seems that a rich man that was enjoying life very much in this life then was suffering, and Lazarus, who was suffering in this life, later on was uh, rejoicing in paradise, supposedly. But this passage has several implications that we cannot really consider it as a literal statement. It is just allegory or has a symbolic meaning or, a, you know, as we say, a parable. And uh, I quote in the book and uh, a, few, uh, a few theologians that really uh, show why this cannot be considered as a literal text. But basically, in a few words, if this was really a portrait of the afterlife and one went to, 
to heaven or paradise, to the bosom of Abraham, and the other one went to hell, or if even if you want to call it purgatory, whatever you want. The thing is, in that communication between them, there was just a valley or a hole where one could not go from one place to the other one, but was clear enough without any cell phone or whatsoever, they could speak to each other. So I guess that in, in such a case, let's suppose that uh, a mother would be saved and the son would be lost. They would not rejoice. I mean, the, the mother seeing the suffering of his uh, son. So it would be too close to each other. And in addition, there is reference in the case of Abraham, I mean, the rich man, of having eyes fingers and tongue and so on and so forth. Uh, in this case, the soul, if this would be a literal um, portrait of the afterlife, then the soul would need to have a physical body. And having a physical body able to suffer as described in this text, then it would be, uh, I mean, the resurrection would have uh, no sense, make no sense at all, because there was already a body for the soul in the afterlife. So, in this case, there are several evidences that really this cannot be used, because the implications of taking it as a literal description would be far worse than just to leave it aside and saying, this is, was, this is just a parable that Jesus used, and there are evidences, I think, that we have enough that they were some kind of teachings, uh, a parable used at that time that Jesus just picked up to, to teach that whatever decision we made, make in this life has eternal consequences and our destiny is decided here during this life and there is no chance of reversing it in the so-called afterlife. It's a very important lesson for us to learn, for all of us to learn, to understand. I like the last few verses of this, of this chapter that really, where Jesus ties it all together, just exactly what you're talking about. In verse number 27, he says, I beg you therefore, speaking to Abraham, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Now look at verses 30 and 31. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So here Jesus makes it very plain. He says, even if even if someone rose from the dead and went back and told them, they still wouldn't believe because they don't believe Moses and the prophets. Or in other words, they don't believe the Bible. And if they're not going to believe the clear teachings of the Bible, somebody going back and telling them from the dead isn't going to change their mind as well. And it's interesting with these, with these Jewish leaders, they didn't believe Jesus. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And even when someone came back from the dead, who not coincidentally was named Lazarus, even when he came back, they still didn't believe. So just an incredible picture here of not what literally happens when a person dies, 
but a powerful lesson for us to learn. There's another problem text here. Uh, Oh, go right ahead. Yes, please. I think that you brought up uh, uh, these passages that are very significant. In this case, it calls the attention to, to Moses and the prophets. I think that the same thing applies to the state of the dead. Why should we not go to the to uh, Moses and the prophets and to learn from them what they have to say about the human nature and the state of the dead? And even these very same passages confirms that the condition for somebody to come back to life is resurrection. This is the very last sentence of the passage. Absolutely. Well, well put, well put. Let's take a look at the second problem text, and this one is found over in Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 and verse number 43. Let me see if I can pull this one up real quick. Luke chapter 23, verse number 43. This is one that's uh, caused some challenges for some people, but I think it doesn't need to. In Luke 23, verse number 43, it's talking about uh, Jesus' uh, crucifixion, and he's in his last moments, as it were, he's speaking to the repentant thief. He's got a, two thieves, one on his left and one on his right. The repentant thief. And Jesus says to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, it really does sound like Jesus is telling that thief that he's going to be with him in paradise, in heaven, that day. But that's not really what it says, even though it might look like that on the surface. Help us through that, Alberto. First of all, we have to remember that the original Greek text, uh, text did not have commas or punctuation, so to say. They were added later on. In this case, the question really, the crucial question is if the comma should, should go after the word today, semeron in Greek, or before. And it changes significantly the meaning. It could, uh, could say, I, I, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Or, I, I, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, from the text itself, it's very difficult to decide which way to go because the text is not clear in itself. But I think that we have other evidences where to place the comma. And especially from, I have, there is an Anglican biblical scholar, E.W. Bollinger, and he says that this pattern of uh, putting the word, I mean today, is a matter of emphasis, very common in the, for the, the Hebrew mentality. In other words, it's a Hebrew idiom, so to say. And in the book of Deuteronomy, and I am not providing the passages here, you find it in the book, but uh, you will have several instances where the the text actually says, and I say unto unto thee this day. So uh, the idea of putting this day is a matter of emphasis. And going to the, uh, back to the passage of uh, John, uh, a friend even stated this. Uh, his name is Wilson Parosky. He 
he mentions that uh, in all the cases that you have in the book, or better saying, in the writings of, uh, of, uh, of Luke, not only his gospel, but also the Acts of the Apostles, in the vast majority of those passages, it always comes connected with uh, the verb that precedes the word semeron or today and not the one that comes after. You have a few instances that it goes after, but the tendency, the style of John is to connect early with the verb. So we understand that this passage is based really, it should read, I, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. In this interpretation is confirmed by the fact that later on when Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, uh, he even stated, and this you find in uh, Matthew 26, 20, uh, 64, saying that I have not yet gone to my father. Absolutely. I was just thinking of over in John, it's exactly the same thing. In John 20, verse 17, Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I, as- I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. You are right. That's the right passage. I, I was referring to another one. Sorry. It's a good passage, too. They're all good <laughs> passages. But one thing that encourages me in looking at that passage in John chapter 20, where Jesus says, I haven't yet ascended. If Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. We accept that Jesus was crucified on the Friday. He rose on Sunday. And on Sunday, he tells Mary, I haven't gone to paradise yet. I haven't gone to heaven yet. If that's true, then Jesus is either lying to the thief on Friday or he is lying to Mary on Sunday. One of the two. And we have to decide who Jesus is lying to. Now, I don't know if that makes you uncomfortable or not, but it does make me uncomfortable. Because as far as I know, Jesus doesn't lie. And the truth is, he doesn't. If we get that comma in the right place, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. There, Jesus is telling the truth to the thief on Friday. He's telling the truth to Mary on Sunday. And he's in complete agreement with all the other verses in the Bible on the subject. Don't base your faith on a comma, friends. If you want to dig into this more deeply, make sure that you do pick up the companion book to this quarter's study. It is on death, dying, and the future hope. Again, that is by Dr. Alberto Tim, our guest today. You can pick it up at itiswritten.shop. We're going to be back in just a moment as we continue our journey through these problem texts. We'll make it easy. We'll be right back. Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. More and more people are watching It Is Written TV. They're watching their favorite It Is Written programs, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. 
See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. Watch It Is Written TV for free anytime on Roku, Apple TV, and at itiswritten.tv. Welcome back to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. We are continuing to look through these problem passages, these contrary texts, to see if we can find answers for them. The beauty of the Bible is it's not going to teach two different things on one subject because God doesn't teach two different things on one subject. So if we're looking at what the Bible teaches about what happens when you die and the future hope, we can know that it's going to be in agreement from Genesis to Revelation. So our next text that we're going to look at is Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 23. And here in verse 23, Paul says, For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Alberto, help us to understand what Paul meant when he said that, because it sounds like he's saying when he dies, he's going to immediately be with Jesus. We have to take into consideration the context. Actually, Paul was suffering a lot, and not only from the, the Jews that uh, did not accept him very well, but even some Christians. So his life was quite a cross, so to say. His, his cross was very heavy to be carried. And it came to a point when he actually said, well, I think that the better for me is to rest, to depart and be with Christ. Some people believe that this was a reference that he would be immediately with the Lord. But I don't think that this is the best interpretation of the passage because we have other evidences. First of all, in his early writings, he spoke of the resurrection as the only hope for that people to be with the Lord consciously. He spoke about about, uh, the dead being unconsciously waiting for the resurrection to take place. And that you have, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians. But some some authors argue that uh, in uh, meanwhile, in the time later on, he changed his mind and uh, started to believe that uh, the person, when the person dies, immediately goes to heaven. But this is not the case because in his uh, final, his last epistle, Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, he actually s- speaks about the crown of righteousness that he will receive or his reward he will receive only at the second coming and not immediately after he dies. So in this case, we would understand this passage, and there are other evidences that you can read later on, that it simply meant, as he stated elsewhere, that not life nor death can separate us from Christ, because even in grave, the treasury of his salvation would be assured. He had the assurance of salvation, and the reward would he would receive at the second coming of Christ. And Paul was constantly looking forward to that. He, he hoped that he would be able to live and see Christ come in the clouds. He didn't. 
but he can one day look forward to receiving that crown of righteousness that he describes there in his, in his valedictory. A beautiful passage. Let's take a look at another one here. This one, this one can be a, a difficult one for some people to look at, but it becomes very easy once you unpack it just a little bit. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And I'm going to read these because it's important to take a look at some of the, the tenses that are described here. They'll help us out a little bit. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So what are, who are these spirits in prison? When did they live? What's their significance? Help us out with that, Alberto. Well, some people who believe in the natural immortality of the soul would say that actually those were the uh, spirits of the antediluvians who really remained, uh, in, whether in, in hell or in, probably in purgatory, waiting for, uh, for whatever would take place. And then Jesus went there and really preached to them uh, like a message of uh, judgment. But now we face a contradiction. Those who use the passage of, uh, of Luke that says, you will be with me in paradise, and now you have this one. Actually, when Jesus died, did he go to paradise or really went to hell? Or both of them? We have plenty of evidences that Jesus remained in the tomb, did not go in any of those places. So the meaning of this passage is really that Christ, to the work of the Holy Spirit, preached to, to the rebellious generation prior to the flood. That was the case. And they were not literally in prison. They were this, in this, the prison of sin. That's the meaning of this passage. And I quote a few authors here, then you can unpack it a little bit more. Excellent. So this is not Jesus going down into purgatory or hell to preach to people to get them to repent. But as it says, when the Spirit was working back in the days of Noah, Christ was speaking to them, uh, trying to encourage them out of the prison house of sin uh, and to, well, really to make good decisions. Yeah, and using Noah as the preacher of righteousness. He was the human instrument of the Holy Spirit in those days. Very good. Excellent. All right, we've got one more. And this one can be a challenge to some people. Again, it doesn't have to be, and we're going to try to make it simple. But we're over in Revelation chapter 6 now, looking at verses 9 through, oh, we'll say verse 11. Verse 9 says, And when he, Jesus, opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer 
until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was accomplished. So there are, there are a few problems here, I think, and I'm going to let you solve them for us, but it, it sounds like we've got some righteous people. They've been slain for the word of God, but they're in misery. So one would think that if they were in heaven, they would be rejoicing. And not only are they apparently in misery, but they're calling for vengeance. Now, usually when we think of the righteous, they're not the ones who are calling out for vengeance. They have more of a forgiving character. So help us to to understand what's going on here. Actually, this passage is a symbolic passage. Apocalyptic language definitely so that employs symbols. And here you have uh, the souls of the righteous or better saying of the martyrs, actually crying under the altar. Uh, what altar would, would be this? This is the altar of burns, burnt offerings where sacrifices were offered. At the same time, uh, they, they uh, sacrificed or their life was sacrificed there. And the evidence for being the altar of sacrifice, because there is a reference of blood, and there were bloody sacrifices were offered. But this is, again, a metaphorical uh, language, because even a, a Lutheran uh, theologian, Lenski, he says, if this would be taken literally, what a huge opening should be under the altar so that all the 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 souls of the righteous people could fit into it. But this is not actually the case. It's interesting that Jesus uh, actually made a reference to the blood of uh, Abel. And even God, when God spoke to Cain, you remember there in Genesis chapter 4, he said that the blood of Abel was crying to him. And at the same time, you have Jesus uh, referring to, to, the, to the blood as well. And in Hebrews, uh, and this is Hebrews 11.4, it says, Through faith the blood of Abel still speaks. So this is a metaphoric language where the blood is speaking for justice. Not only of Abel, but also of the martyrs and uh, speaking to God, asking God to make justice. Beautifully put. So God is one day going to bring justice. In this world right now, there is a lot of injustice. And a lot of people pay for their Christian faith, many of them with their lives. But one day, God is going to make everything right. And that day is not in the very distant future. I want to encourage you, if you want to dig more into these texts, make sure that you do pick up that companion book. It is a wonderful resource that will help you to understand those texts and a whole lot more, much, much better. It has been a delight to have you with us again this week on Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. And I want to invite you to join us again next week as we take a look at lesson number 10, We are rapidly reaching the end of our time together in this lesson, but there is much more to come and you don't want to miss any of it. God bless you. Thank you once again for joining us and we will see you next time.